Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. All right. Good morning, everyone. Hey, it's good to see everybody this morning. My name is Matt, and I am the family pastor here. And uh, I get to share God's word with you this morning, which is something I love to do and a privilege every time I get to do it. Pastor Nate is uh, down in Southern California. He was a speaker at a conference down there for youth workers um, and then uh, was able to teach at a Calvary Chapel down there as well and uh, bless the people there. So he'll be back next week. And uh, as we finish up our kind of summer through the Psalms, he's going to be launching into our new series in Exodus, which you're not going to want to miss. It's going to be great. So go ahead and turn, if you haven't already, to Psalm 21. I'm going to read this passage, and then uh, we will jump in and see what the Lord has to say to us today. The title says to the choir master, a Psalm of David, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. For you meet him with a rich blessing. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Welcome to church this morning. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is perfect, converting the soul. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word, would you open our hearts now to receive what it is that you want to say to us? Lord, for those that are discouraged, would you encourage them? For those that are complacent, Lord, would you, by your Holy Spirit, exhort them out of complacency. And Lord, for each of us, let us get a greater glimpse of your glory today so that, Lord, as we behold you, Lord, you would allow us to become more like you as a result. So we thank you for this time. Blessed in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you ever find yourself watching a baseball game on an evening at Oracle Park, which is the home of the San Francisco Giants, and they happen to win, there are two things that you can count on happening. One is dozens of seagulls will gather overhead, circling around the park, waiting perhaps for their opportunity to swoop down and grab a garlic fry or two. And the second is you will hear a song played over the speakers, that Tony Bennett classic, I Left My Heart in San Francisco. This song is played after every Giants home game win. It's their victory song. It's the song that proclaims that they have defeated their foe. Unfortunately, that song has not been playing a whole lot this season, but 
That's another story. What we have today is another type of victory song. Psalm 21, many people believe, is a sequel to Psalm 20, which Pastor Nate led us through last week, which was really a song of prayer and petition for God to bring victory over our enemies. As David, most likely the king referred to in this passage, returns home from victory, the people would sing this psalm and thank God for the victory that he won. It's a song that people would sing to declare that they were victorious, that the king was victorious. So in one sense, this is a royal psalm declaring the king's victory over his enemies. But this psalm has also largely been considered a messianic psalm, which as many of you know, a messianic psalm is the psalm that speaks about the coming Messiah and speaks forward prophetically to who he is and what he will do. It's a psalm that is prophetic. This is backed up by the Targum, which is a Chaldean paraphrase of the Old Testament, and the Talmud, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. Those teachers would both mention this psalm as a messianic psalm. In fact, Talmudic scholar Rabbi Solomon, born in 1040 AD, endorsed this interpretation that this speaks to the Messiah but he said it should be given up on account of Christians making use of this psalm as evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. So I think we can be confident that this psalm is speaking about our King, Jesus. And that's how I want to look at this psalm this morning. I want us to see the beautiful portrait it paints of our King, Jesus. And in a prophetic way, the psalm speaks to the reality of our Savior's victory when he defeated our greatest enemy, Satan's sin and death through his sacrifice on the cross and resurrection from the grave. So what I want to do this morning is I want to look at five things this psalm teaches us about our King Jesus as we look at this portrait and the victory of Jesus. Number one, let's look at verses one and two. I want us to see first the joy of Jesus. It says in those scriptures, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah, which is a, a, a part of the Psalms that would cause us to take pause and to meditate on this. The other night as I was putting our two boys to bed, as our normal routine is at night, we usually read through a portion of whatever Bible it is that we're going through. So our boys are canon and crew, they're 10 and five. And as I was reading the Bible story, I looked over and I saw crew kind of just thinking of something in his mind and he interjected and he said, hey dad. And I said, what buddy? He said, I wanna know what Jesus looks like. It was just a really sweet kind of just, desire that he, he spoke up about. And so for a second, I, I just the images that I had grown up with or the pictures of Jesus that people had tried to portray came into my mind. You know, maybe you have some pictures of Jesus that are in your mind. You know, I think of the, the picture I remember seeing in a, in a Bible or, or a painting of really serious Jesus. He just kind of had just a really serious look on his face. There was also, I remember a picture of Jesus that just made Jesus look really sad really kind of solemn. And then the one that I remember most, I think is, um, I don't know, maybe just call it surfer Jesus. It's the Jesus with really long, blonde, straight hair, 
you know, tanned skin, trimmed beard. That one uh, really stuck out in my mind, but I didn't want to show crew any of those pictures because honestly, those don't capture who Jesus really is. And they most likely uh, are terrible representations of what he would have looked like, but they were really popular in the 80s and 90s, huh? But I decided to tell crew more what it would feel like to look into the face of Jesus. And I said something along the lines of, crew, I think to look into the face of Jesus would be looking into the face of a person that causes you to feel the most loved and accepted of anyone that you've ever looked at. And I started to think through and I was gonna go on and elaborate and then crew stopped me and he said, but dad, can he fly? (laughs) And then we got to the heart of what he was wondering. That was really... The main question. But I think these verses tell us that to look into the face of Jesus would be to look into the face of someone who knew what it was like to have true joy. You see, Jesus' earthly ministry, he faced different obstacles and difficulties with the people around him. So it wasn't that Jesus' life was easy, no, no. But there was something that even in the face of difficulties and challenges that ultimately the cross, Jesus possessed a joy. We know of this because in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it talks about the kind of joy that Jesus had in the face of what he was experiencing. It says, looking to Jesus in verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, friends, it was joy for Jesus to endure the cross because this meant salvation, reconciliation, redemption for all who would believe. This joy that Jesus experienced while facing the greatest suffering anyone has ever faced was possible because in his heart's desire, the desire to see creation reconciled and made whole, he knew that that was possible only through the sacrifice of his life laid down for us. Now, this didn't make his suffering any less painful, but he was able to endure with joy because his vision was not set on the temporal, but on the eternal. We get a picture of this in the beautiful high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, where through this verse and through these uh, verses, Jesus reveals to us the desires of his heart prayed before the Father. John 17, one through three says, Father, the hour has come. Now glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people in order that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, Jesus had joy in the face of his greatest trial because he knew what he was sent to do. John three seventeen, he has come not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, might be reconciled back to right relationship with God. And he could see on the other side of Calvary as he submitted himself to the will of the Father that this was the way for that to happen. Friends, the joy of Jesus is available to us no matter what we face today. Because it's a joy that doesn't depend on everything going well in life. I I, I mean, more and more, as I get older, I'm convinced whether it's relational um, issues or difficulties health-wise, or is there ever a time where we just feel like, oh yeah, everybody's good and everything's fine and everything's great? (laughs) No, 
We aren't waiting for that in order to experience joy. We can have joy no matter the circumstances because it's a joy that faces difficulty and says, yes, Lord, even in this, you're working all things together for good. It's having that eternal perspective. Even though I might not see it yet, even though I might not see it this side of heaven, I can trust that you will do it and I'd submit myself to your will. And in this, the joy of our Lord becomes our strength. If Jesus faced his trials with joy, don't you know that he can give you the same strength and joy to face the things that you are going through today? The joy of Jesus. Next, number two, let's look at the glory of Jesus. This is found in verses three through five. The psalmist continues, he says, for you meet him with rich blessings and you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. These verses speak to the glory and the majesty of Jesus. What do we mean when we talk about the glory of Jesus? We're not talking about his aesthetic beauty or his material beauty, but the beauty that emanates from his character and from all that he is. His glory speaks to his magnificence and his worth, his loveliness and his grandeur. When we think of the majesty of Jesus, we think of his authority as king of kings and lord of lords. After his resurrection, before his ascension, remember what did he say to his disciples? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This speaks to his majesty, his reign as king. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he is the radiance of the glory of God. You wanna know what the glory of God is? Look at Jesus because he's the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, why is it important for us to recognize the authority, the kingship, the lordship of Jesus? Well, when you commit your life to living for Jesus, what you are doing is you are coming under the rule and the authority and the reign of him as master. But not just any master, not just any king, but a good king, an eternal king, as verse four tells us, and a king that has secured our salvation through his own sacrifice in our place. So what are the implications of this? If following Jesus means laying down our wills and submitting ourselves to the will of King Jesus and his kingdom values, that can be scary. What is he gonna do? Where is he gonna send me? And then wherever he sends me, what food am I gonna be eating there? These are the questions we may think about. But is this kind of, Isn't this kind of what we do? Lord, I'll give you part of my life, but I surrender not quite everything because this one part I'm not sure I'm ready to give to you because I don't know if I can fully trust that you have my best interests in mind. But friends, we need to remember that what God does when, when we surrender to him is he takes us and he is working in us to mold and to shape and to make us into something altogether new. Because as God changes and transforms us, his goal is that he would receive the glory, that we would become that signpost that doesn't point to us and our self-improvement efforts, but that would point to him, that we would become tapestries of his grace. I think a lot of the time, I know there have been moments in my life where I'm at a crossroads, I have to make a big decision And a lot of the time I I get 
caught up on where. Lord, where do you want me? Where do you want me to be? And, and I don't think that's trivial. I think it's important to be led by the Holy Spirit, to receive wisdom and counsel from trusted men and women in our lives to know if we are to move or if we are to uproot and, and plant somewhere else. These are important things, but I remember in the midst of a season where I was at a crossroads, should I go here, should I stay here? I remember somebody saying to me, you know what, Matt? God is more, he is not as much concerned with where you are as who you are and who you are becoming. So oftentimes, you know, it's like, I don't want to miss out on God's will. And so if I do that, you know, and, and, and it was helpful to have someone ask me the question, hey, if you go here, are you going to become more like Christ and be transformed into his image and continue to be a demonstration of his gospel? Well, yeah, I'd roughly as far as I know. And if you go here, ask me the same question. And it was helpful to go, okay, in some ways, as long as I'm submitted to the will of the Lord, as long as I follow him, as long as I'm seeking his best in my life, I think God says, yeah, go. Yeah, stay. And I think 2 Corinthians 3.18 helps us understand this. It says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is the mission of King Jesus, that, that we would behold him because the more that we behold him, the more that we will become like him. We can't help but have that happen. The more that we are in his presence, the more that we are seeking his face, the more that we are desiring to have the Holy Spirit lead and influence our life, the more that he is gonna just do this great work of Christ-likeness in us. That's helpful because it means that my process of sanctification, my change, it's not all up to me. <laughs> if it were, man, that, that is a really slow process. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that the Lord is working and his will is that I would be conformed to his image. I wanna be aligned with his will. At the conference this last week, I was able to join Nate and there was a speaker who was talking about when we do go and when God does call us, because there are times where he will do that, and I was so encouraged but when he said this, when the Holy Spirit sends you out, he sends you with himself. Isn't that encouraging? What's for me? You mean the, the Lord doesn't just send me out so that I could fail or that I could fall? or that, 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 Oh man, I thought, but man, honestly seeking the Lord, honestly seeking his will is to know that he's gonna be with you because he's, he's doing a work. He's transforming and he's molding us. And C.S. Lewis has a great way to describe the transformative work that God's doing. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's a beautiful picture of what happens when we surrender and we submit to the lordship of King Jesus in our lives. All right, number three, the position of Jesus. As we've seen, the 
joy of Jesus, as we've looked at the glory of Jesus, let's look at the position of Jesus from verses six and seven. It says, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the most high, he shall not be moved. Now these verses speak to the privileged position that Jesus holds in heaven in perfect harmony with the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. This is a position that will not be moved. And the steadfast, never failing love of the Trinity is something that we are invited to peer into because it's, it's something that has happened and existed throughout all time. The doctrine of the Trinity, if you don't know, teaches that there is one God that eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This triune Godhead has existed forever, even before creation, before the first humans were ever made, God existed as a Trinity. Now, why do we bring this up, this theological point? Well, to know that God existed one in three persons is to know that he has always been a relational being. The Bible tells us that God's nature, his essence is love. Not, not so much that he is loving, but that he is love. He cannot not be love. That's essential to his nature. So this means that God in himself has always existed as a loving relational community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Someone has made this point. If God were not a trinity, if he were unipersonal, who would he love? How would it be true that God is love? This theological truth that God is love, really, uh, we understand to to a great degree because we understand that he is three in one. Love could not be at the heart of the universe if God was unipersonal. You would have power, but not love. But if God is triune, then loving relationships are at the center of reality, and God can have love as his essence. So then God makes mankind. Why does God make us? Why did he make you? Maybe you're asking that question. (laughs) Maybe somebody else is asking that question. Why did God make you? Well, listen, it was not because God was lonely. It was not because God was lacking. In the perfection of the Trinity, God was not lacking anything. God made humanity not because he needed something, but because he wanted to share something himself, his love with us, his creation to invite us into the love that has always existed between the relational triune Godhead, a perfect love. Once again, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, he says, what the Christians mean by the statement, God is love, is that the living dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The dance of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, mutually giving and receiving love. This has been happening forever. And then God makes us. And what does he do? He invites mankind to join the dance, to be a part of the greatest acceptance, the greatest love, the greatest relational community that we could ever know. And this is a result now for us because of what Jesus has done. Jesus' victory on the cross has made this possible. Where sin kept us from entering the dance Jesus' life, the gospel, 
has allowed us to enter in. Galatians 4 says, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's a reason Paul referred to the Galatian believers as adopted sons. Even though there were Galatian women who were believers, the reason has to do with the Roman custom of adoption, where a son who was adopted, that son was given absolutely equal privileges in the family and equal status as an heir as if they were a blood-born son. So when Paul says that we are adopted as sons, what he's saying is we have all the rights and privileges that are Christ's as we have been accepted into his family. I don't know what that does for you, but um, to know that I've been invited in, that I've been adopted, that I am accepted, that I have access to the Father, that I could come boldly. I don't have to ask permission, but I can come to him with my fears, with my anxieties, with my emotions, and I can place my cares upon him knowing that he cares for me. That humbles me. Man, and that causes me to feel such security in Christ. And I think this is important because so much of the unhealth that comes out of our lives is a result of forgetting our position in Christ. If I'm not secure in who Christ has made me, if I am not getting my acceptance and my worth and my value from the fact that I am adopted into the family of God, that I am loved, that I am forgiven, criticism and critique is going to be very hard for me to receive. You know, when somebody accidentally cuts me off or, or I accidentally cut someone off and then they honk the horn and they get upset and they tell me I'm number one or whatever it is, it's like, you know, I don't know about you, that doesn't really bother me all that much because they don't know me. Um, <laughs> at best, they know my, my driving, um, you know, uh, kind of habits, but the, it doesn't offend me all that much. It's not that hard for me to receive. It's one thing to criticize my driving, but it's another thing to receive criticism from the people that do know me, that are close to me. Because I think deep down, we don't want to really believe that people might actually know how flawed we are, how selfish we are, how much we forget to consider the feelings and the well-being of others. That just stings. And so much of the time, we try to justify it. We try to do things that would distract or deter from the heart of the issue which is, I'm broken, I'm in process, I'm not perfect, I have a long way to go, but man, Christ is committed to me and I'm committed to his commitment. <laughs> you see, the gospel humbles us and if we do find our standing and our security in Christ, it can humble us to the point where we can't admit that we are broken, that we are in process that our perspectives aren't always correct, that our judgments on others are not always right, that we do get it wrong, and yet we are still loved by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and he has brought us in by his grace. That grace has brought us in, and that grace is what keeps us. So friends, enjoy the dance. Let it warm your heart and humble you all at the same time.
Okay, number four, the justice of Jesus. Just two more. Now, these verses are perhaps the most difficult for us to read in this psalm. Verses eight through 12 says this, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight and you will aim at their faces with your bows. I Googled to try to find this verse on a coffee mug or, um, you know, a cross-stitch tapestry, but I wasn't able to. No. So these verses, we look at this and for some, we go, okay, wow, we just took a hard right. We were just talking about the love, the dance, and now we're talking about the wrath and the judgment of God. How do we reconcile these two things, a God of love and a God of justice or a God of wrath? I actually want us to see, in order to have a loving God, you must have a God that is just and willing to punish evil and sin. In fact, you can't have one without the other. Paul gets to this dimension of our God when in Romans eleven twenty two he says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Friends, God is both severe and kind. And I put forth that deep down, we really don't want it any other way. <laughs> but how can we understand this? First, I think it's understanding what we really mean by the love of God and what we're not saying. When we speak of God being love and God so loved the world, we are using a word that has been drained of so much meaning in our culture today. I love in and out I love my wife. I love watching the Dodgers lose. These are all things that I love. Sorry, Pastor Nate. Same word, different meanings. When we talk about the love of God, we are not talking about a sappy, romantic, emotionally volatile love likened to a young couple that are in the throes of infatuation. No. You see, this love from God is not primarily emotional. To quote Dallas Willard, love is to will the good of another. How can you will the good of another unless you know what is truly good for that person? That's God. The love of God is more like the love of a parent to their child. My point is that God's love does not wax and wane. God's love is intentional and it is directional. But the same can be true of God's judgment and wrath. When we speak of the wrath of God, we can think of a, an irrational rage. I brought up the example of someone, me or me cutting someone off. You know, the, the, the rage that happens when we are frustrated and angry and upset with someone um, getting to a red light faster than us. This highly emotional outburst and this volatility. We think of wrath in those human terms, but this is not what is meant by the wrath of God. No, the wrath of God is not a crazed rage, but rather a consistent opposition to sin and evil. What is at the heart? What is it that has brought about God's wrath, even in the verses we have before us? Well, if you noticed, the reason for this wrath is not random. It's not that God just got upset one day and was ticked off. That's not, that's not God. It's not the far side comic picture of God at a computer with the smite button on his keyboard. You remember that one? 
Look at God's response and why his wrath is necessary. It's to those who hate you, those that plan evil against you, those that devise mischief. This is evil and wickedness in opposition to God. James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, has been helpful to me in understanding this idea of God's love and his wrath. He says, I quote, God's wrath is a mindful, objective, rational response. God is not indecisive when it comes to evil. God is fiercely and forcefully opposed to the things that destroy his precious people. And he goes on to say, God's wrath must be understood in relation to his love. Wrath is not a permanent attribute of God. This is important. Whereas love and holiness are part of his essential nature, wrath is contingent upon human sin. In fact, if there was no sin, there would be no wrath. Wrath is not something God is, but something that God does. Wrath is the just act of a holy God towards sin. Wrath is what humans experience when they reject God and it is a necessary part of his love. I think that that's helpful for us to understand. It would be true theologically for us to say God is holy, God is love. It would be untrue theologically to say God is wrath because wrath is something that God does. It is not something that he is. We can think of the parent that learns of the harm of one of their kids that is faced at the hands of an abuser. What is their attitude towards the abuser continuing to hurt and harm their child? Is it indifference? No, for any loving parent, they would not look the other way. No, love would demand justice and the swiftest punishment of the law to be meted out against that person who has caused such pain. The great theologian J.I. Packer says, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be a good and admirable being? Moral indifference would be an imperfection in God not a perfection. You see, our culture today likes talking about God's love and acceptance. They don't like talking about God's justice. But friends, his justice, his wrath, these are outflows of him being a loving God. In fact, how would you have universal human rights were it not for a God who can see what is right and see what is wrong and can punish the wrongdoer. We can all think of those that we would say, man, God, I am glad you are a just God because of this person or this figure in history. But we stop short when the mirror is pointed at us. But friends, you have to understand that it's the kindness of God that is meant to lead us back to him, to repentance. And can I just say, it's because of his love that he has made a way that the judgment for our sin would not ultimately have to fall on us. You see, at the cross, there was this perfect union of God's holiness and his justice, which he could not deny, and his love for his creation, which met when in God, in human flesh, stepped in front of us, and absorbed the wrath and judgment that we deserved on the cross. And it was only Jesus who could take our punishment for us, pay the penalty, and then prove that he was greater than sin and death and rise again. At the cross, God's perfect holiness and his perfect love met in Jesus. And friends, that's the gospel. That's the good news that for today you have a decision and you have a choice to choose to receive the way 
to choose to receive the love and the goodness of God demonstrated through the cross. But God is a perfect gentleman and he will not force that upon anyone. And in fact, what we face is a decision of eternity to choose to reject Jesus and his free gift of salvation is to spend eternity away from the presence of God, experiencing the full brunt of his judgment. This is not God's desire for you. In fact, hell was not created for us, the scriptures say. It was made for the devil and his demons. But if we are unwilling to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus, he will not force us to. He will give us for eternity what we have chosen while here on this earth. Complete autonomy. C.S. Lewis says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Choose this day who you will serve. Number five, we close with this, the worship of Jesus. Look at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The psalmist ends by declaring to the Lord that he is worthy of praise and offering a heartfelt commitment to worship him. And this worship is, is what it really means to follow King Jesus, to acknowledge his lordship over our lives, to choose to follow and obey him because of how much he has loved and given to us. And then to every day grow in receiving the love of the triune Godhead as a child of the king. Worship, it comes from two words, worth-ship, which is to ascribe a worth to. It means centering our lives upon Christ. There are so many things that we can center our lives upon in this world. And yet Jesus invites us to center our lives upon him by committing every day to grow in our awareness of his great love and allowing that to impact us and to flow out into our lives and to those we meet. When we do that, God will transform us into the likeness of his son. The world will see the peace and joy that comes from following King Jesus. It doesn't mean everything hard goes away, but it does mean that in everything, we have a loving savior that is with us and offers us his power and love no matter what we face. Next month, my wife and I celebrate 16 years of marriage. I know we don't look like we could be married that long. We got married when we were 14 and uh, it's kind of a weird thing, but... Uh, the night we got engaged was a pretty special night as it, as it is, um, but it was the night she said yes to being with me for the rest of her life, and I was humbled and I was so blessed. I had, I had a thought that she would say yes, but as I've talked to other um, men that have, uh, you know, asked that question, you're still super nervous. But man, when she said that she would be my wife, so much joy, so much excitement, and we did the natural thing on the way home. We stopped at an In-N-Out. Um, but while she was in the restroom, I had this idea. It just came into my head. I hadn't planned this out. But it was kind of a crowded In-N-Out, as, as they mostly are. I stood up on one of the booths, and I just raised my voice, and I just said, hey, everyone, can I get your attention? It's kind of a weird thing to do. But <laughs> I let everyone know that I just got engaged to my fiance. She was in the restroom. And they cheered for me. They were like, good job, all right. But then I asked them to cheer for her when she came out. <clears throat> so a moment later, Brie came into the lobby and she was just met with this like uproarious applause. <laughs> Somehow she knew, she knew like what was going on. I think I said, there's my fiance. And so and then we, um, we just soaked it in and, and we left. And it, it was 
You know, it was so fun to be able to do that. And if we ever go out to In-N-Out, I don't do that kind of thing normally, so don't freak out. But, but I, I was so excited to share the news that I was going to spend the rest of my life with this person that I had to tell somebody. And it, it made me do something unusual. It made me step outside of my comfort zone. And if I can say, you know, this chapter, it's a proclamation. It's an announcement of the victory that our king has won for us. It's the greatest news that we could ever embrace. And let's let this good news be proclaimed to the watching world around us. In the way that we live, the words that we use, the things that we pursue. In some ways, it might mean stepping outside of our comfort zones or doing things that the world would look at as unusual because of the commitments we make or the decisions we choose to live under. But that's what happens when you found a love like no other love, when you found an acceptance that no one else can offer. That's what happens when you've been invited into the dance and you are receiving that kind of love. Let's share that kind of love with a world that is desperately in need of it. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.